Hello, and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com. I'm James Allgood, one of today's co-hosts. I'm in product marketing for Ignite, a secure content platform focused on key global industries. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, today's other co-host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is a platform that provides access to the world's life sciences expertise and is the place to discover, build, and manage on-demand life science teams. I'm excited to welcome Armand Cherie, founder and CEO of Squeeze Biotechnologies. Thanks for joining us today, Armand. Thanks for having me, guys. So to start off, we'd love to learn a bit more about your career and how you got to where you are today. Sure. And thanks again for having me on. So kind of for brief background to get us started, I was a chemical engineer by training in, in undergrad. And then for my PhD, I also went into MIT for chemical engineering. And over there, we were working on a project to try to deliver uh, materials into cells. And it was a microfluidics-based system that we were working on. Through the course of that project, we made an incidental discovery that essentially if you squeeze cells, you can disrupt their membrane temporarily such that anything that's outside will go in. And the cells will just detect that disruption and close it back up. And while this was in some ways a very simple observation that just squishing cells at high speeds can allow you to deliver material, it seemed to have a profound difference relative to what others had previously achieved when it comes to being able to load materials into cells. And now why this matters from an ultimate patient impact and therapeutic perspective is if you think about the world of cell therapies right now, people have a lot of limitations on what kinds of cell therapies they can create and how practically they can implement them, where right now cell therapies have only been applicable to certain more niche indications, and they're very complicated and expensive to produce. But if you can solve these fundamental problems of how do you engineer cells and how do you do it in a scalable way, you can start to create cell therapies that'll go across a much broader spectrum of indications. And so during my PhD, when we discovered this squeezing technology, we actually weren't really sure what to do with it because being a chemical engineer by background, biology was kind of a side thing. So we didn't really understand where to go with it. And we started collaborating with a lot of different groups within MIT and Harvard and these other institutions. And we started to get exposed to a lot of interesting biological questions that people were trying to answer using our technology, ranging from immunology and oncology research to stem cells, et cetera. And through the course of this, we saw that people really cared about the problem we had solved with Squeeze, and it could really have a profound impact in the long run. So towards the end of my PhD in 2013, we started Squeeze as a tool company. And the idea back then was to simply sell the systems as a research tool for academics and companies to try to develop uh, new cell therapies or do research on it, et cetera. And I, at the time, because I was much more academically focused, didn't actually join the company full-time technically. I was very involved with it, but I stayed on the academic side and did a postdoc in immunology at Harvard Med School because what had become very interesting to me was how squeeze could be used to engineer various immune cell functions. Your immune response underpins the ultimate effects of autoimmune diseases or how you can drive a powerful anti-tumor effect for cancers or even in infectious diseases. Obviously, the immune system plays a big role too. It was a very interesting area of biology to go into. So I did my postdoc for about a year and at that stage faced kind of an interesting question of where do I want to go 
with the technology because there was the path of continuing on the academic front, which had certain pros and cons, but then there was the option of switching to Squeeze, which was the company we had started and having the company go more towards the therapeutic side. I ended up choosing to go towards uh, Squeeze as a therapeutic option to try to really bring this to patients. And that was back in 2015. From there, we started to develop some of the therapeutics we thought could be exciting and make a difference. We were very fortunate that some VC investors and angel investors got excited about what we were doing as well and helped to fund this along the way. In 2015, soon after we had transitioned to those therapeutic pursuits, Roche came in as an initial partner on our early programs. And this all really helped get Squeeze going with this kind of momentum building elements of investors and a good partner. So over the years, we were able to build out the company, pursue multiple different programs within oncology and outside of it. And last year, we were able to IPO and go to the public side. And currently, we have two different programs in the clinic and many more in the pipeline that cut across oncology, autoimmune diseases, and infectious diseases. Great. And so taking a step back, you know, pre-squeeze days, post-undergrad, what initially drew you to pursue your PhD and, and where did you see that track going? I actually went into my PhD for reasons that were probably a little bit different from most PhDs. So I, as an undergrad, had very little interest in going to grad school. I just wanted to go work on the industry side and kind of pursue a technical career there. But the way my undergrad professors convinced me to go to grad school was that, you know, on the technical tracks, there's kind of a glass ceiling if you don't have a PhD. I'm not saying it's fair or not. I don't think it's actually a valid glass ceiling, but it exists. And so that's what convinced me like, okay, I need to suck it up and go do a PhD if I don't want to hit a barrier down the line. So that's what convinced me to go pursue a PhD. And then for my PhD, I really wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I had started to get interested in the biology side, but my background was chemical engineering. And the undergrad research I did was all on organic electronics. So it was like flexible display technologies and plastic electronics, that kind of stuff. When I went to MIT for my PhD, part of the attraction was that the department in chemical engineering there is huge. And they have many, many different tracks you could pursue. And the project that really attracted me was this microfluidic delivery system that Klaus Jensen's group at MIT was working on. So that's the project I joined. And I was fortunate that Klaus and Bob Langer became my co-advisors to help pursue that project. Yeah, that's great. So making the switch from an academic environment to founding a company is a big culture shift. What are some of the challenges you faced as a first-time founder? It's a very long list. So nothing about academia really prepares you for the jump. I think there was a wide range of things that you face as you make that transition. So on the one front, there's kind of the team building elements of this, where when you're at an established company or an established academic institution, people want to join you because they have brand recognition, like good students want to go to an MIT or good scientists will want to go to well-known company X that has a track record. When you're trying to start something completely new, people are really going to be taking a leap of faith to join. So it takes a lot of effort and a lot of calling up of, you know, friends or friends of friends to see who would be willing to take that leap of faith with you, given how uncertain it is at the time. So that's one of the big challenges is finding people that you think would share that excitement to go do this. And they're really doing it all on faith so to speak, because there's very little kind of reputation or brand recognition to go off of. So that's, I think, one of the big challenges when you're trying to get off the ground. 
Funding is another obvious element of it, perhaps. Like it takes resourcing to be able to push all these things forward. And for angel investors or VCs, et cetera, there's so many different companies that are trying to get off the ground. So you really need to find a way to A, get in front of them, to have them listen. And then on top of that, you need to find a way to stand out from the crowd. So that was another big element of learning in those early days is to how to find a way to speak to the investors and get them excited about what we're trying to do so that we can hopefully build up into that. And then I think maybe the final category is kind of the operationalization of what you're doing, because at least on the science side, when you're in an academic lab, there's so many resources at your disposal that you don't even think about. It's kind of like, yeah, I'm going to order pipette tips through the system. And then I'm going to go downstairs to the animal facility and not think for two seconds what it takes to run that place or how much it might cost, et cetera. So when you exit that nicely set up and coddled environment, even the most basic things become really challenging and you need to build a lot of stuff up from scratch. So that operationalization is probably another element of this. And all of this is happening with insane time pressure because every second you exist, you're spending money that you fought hard to gain. And so you better make that second worth it. Otherwise, you may not be able to continue. And you know, having a name like Bob Langer associated with your biotech can be a powerful you know, accelerant, but it's still very challenging to raise institutional capital as a first-time founder. Having been through it, from a biotech perspective, what were some of the more perhaps unique questions that you faced as a first-time founder to get investors comfortable with you and your ability to run a biotech? Yeah, that was an interesting area. So I would say it was very different between angels and VCs, and then ultimately kind of hedge funds and public institutions. So what may sound odd is that I think Factors like age and experience were most prominent with the VCs, but less relevant to the angels, but also to the public side investors, which is kind of in some ways odd or like I didn't expect that to be the case. I think angels are one category where, frankly, for them, a lot of this is probably passion as opposed to financial calculus. I think they like to be involved with companies that they find interesting and teams that they can relate to or otherwise find interesting. And it's not as much of a, this is their day job. This is how they get their income. This is generally their flexible income that's going into this. So it's kind of more of a passion project for many angel investors. So it's it's a different mindset as to why they get involved. They need to care about what you're doing and be interested enough in you. They're not really calculating the return, so to speak. VCs, and not all VCs are the same necessarily, but if I were to average it, they kind of have a job, they're much more organized in how they approach company creation, and they have certain formulas they like to pursue that tends to work. And as a first time founder CEO straight out of academia, you kind of have a lot of risks stamped on you until proven otherwise, because you've never run anything before, you've never built any of this before. So how do we know you're not going to totally screw it up? And how much handholding are you going to need? So I think there you have a lot of areas where you need to prove that you can really push things through or that you can excel at certain dimensions. And then they're willing to kind of take the chance slash help you along on the other dimensions that a more experienced person wouldn't have needed help with. 
So I think kind of age and experience can be a serious challenge. And that's where you really need, in, in our case, early champions that are willing to take that chance on you. So our chair, Amy Shulman, she got involved very early on for Squeeze. And it takes people like her to take a chance on the kind of young, unproven founders, because most others would probably be very reluctant. That dynamic is actually not as present when you get to the bigger, more public side funds. I'm not sure I know exactly why it's not as present, but it's just not there as much. And at those stages, it stops really becoming a question anymore, or I haven't noticed it being a question that's any more or less than others. In an interesting way, I do believe that some of those longer term thinking folks on the more public side actually really like it if people are founders from the beginning versus they came in later because they have faith that you would do what's right for the company over yourself, kind of, because you're so attached to it, whereas they would be nervous or they can be nervous about people that kind of parachuted in from elsewhere because they may not be as attached and push comes to shove, would they do what's best for the company or what's best for them? I, I mean, I'm not saying that's a typical behavior, but that is the concern that can creep in if it's not your baby, so to speak. Yeah, that faith seems to keep coming up, both with employees and VCs, right? So I'm curious, we've interviewed a few really innovative companies working in cell therapy. How does Squeeze fit into the landscape? So as I alluded to a little bit earlier on in the intro, we were solving a problem that kind of is endemic to how cell therapies work right now and how they're created. So the basis of almost every cell therapy you've heard of is either electroporation or viral transduction. And these are kind of the two key techniques people use to engineer a cell. They either use a virus to insert something in the cell, or they use an electric field to shock the cell and deliver the cargo of interest. And then that's how you end up with your CAR-Ts, your TCRs, your TILs, your CRISPR-edited HSCs, et cetera. Most, if not all cell therapies you've ever heard of are created by these two techniques. And these two techniques, while they've been successful in implementing the cell therapies we hear about, they have a lot of constraints on what cell types they work with, what kinds of cargos they can work with, how functional the cells are after they've gone through the process. And they have implicitly constrained what cell therapies can be realized and implemented right now. And with Squeeze, what was different is that we seem to really solve for those underlying systemic issues. So for us, we could work across many different cell types or every cell type we've tried among the mammalian cells. We can cut across all kinds of different cargos that you can use to engineer cells. And you can do mixtures of cargos, like you could deliver an mRNA along with a CRISPR element, along with a peptide to engineer the cell. And we otherwise kept the cells normal as a result of this. So this opened up a lot of biological doors that were previously more or less shut for folks. So it allowed us to go and engineer all kinds of functions that were infeasible in the past. And that's where kind of our pipeline ends up looking very different from what other folks typically pursue. It's because we can pursue biologies that are very distinct and we think can ultimately drive a much bigger impact in a different way. So our pipeline in oncology is very solid tumor focused, whereas most cell therapies are very liquid tumor focused. And the mechanisms we pursue are ones that don't have significant tox inherently associated with their mechanisms. So they could be applicable to earlier settings. And the manufacturing is also much more practical with what we do. So because Squeeze is such a simple concept, it has really lent itself to scaling. So our clinical version can do about 10 billion cells a minute, which is 
really fast. A, a typical patient probably only has 10 billion cells you're going to process. So it's very quick to do it. And that's meant that our total manufacturing time is under 24 hours, which is by far faster than the weeks it would typically take for people to produce a cell therapy. And you may wonder like, why does 24 hours versus a week really matter? Well, for cell therapy manufacturing, your CapEx of having the manufacturing facility and the operating costs are your dominant cost factor. And so that means if you can create your cell therapy 10 times faster, you're about 10 times cheaper to create as well. So that really helps relieve a lot of the cost pressure there is with cell therapies where it's so hard to justify the cost of producing them. For us, we fall into the biologics range to produce these. And in the long run, we're actually working towards a point of care version of the system. So right now, cell therapies are typically shipped off to a central site, they're produced and then shipped back. But with our technology, because it's relatively simple and lends itself to integration with other manufacturing elements, we're actually working to integrate it all into a single unit that uses disposable kits and is simple enough for a hospital operator to run. So down the line, we would just do this on site at the hospital and make it that much more practical and accessible to do a cell therapy. So this all goes back to kind of the broader theme of cell therapies have been biologically constrained as well as manufacturing constrained. And if we can unleash both of those parameters, you can actually create cell therapies that are much more broadly applicable and far more practical to implement. So that's kind of the big long-term vision for us. And we have a number of trials in the works right now that next year should start to show data in oncology, at least that could hopefully prove out how much of a difference we can make. Great. And on that point, would love to better understand your pipeline and perhaps how you went assessing which indications to pursue for second and third. That was an interesting challenge given the breadth of the technology where in the early days, it was really hard to tell what is the best first area to pursue. So when we were on the academic side, we were working with really great collaborators across all kinds of therapeutic areas. There's like regenerative medicine, there was a lot of immunology related things, and there's many things within immunology you can do. It was really hard to figure out what is the best area to go after. The way we narrowed down kind of our first set of indications to oncology is that there's been this dream in oncology for a while that has kind of become a negative term now, which is cancer vaccines. So people for a long time have tried to figure out how do I turn on the patient's immune system to go and destroy the tumor? And that's the concept of a cancer vaccine. Now, while immunologically very elegant, no one has really been able to pull it off. All the attempts so far haven't really worked out. And one thing that really intrigued us about that zone was that as we were working with all these immunologists, it seemed like the underlying dynamics of how to activate an immune response are actually very well characterized. It's just no one had a good way of engineering the necessary cells to drive that response, but you kind of knew what ingredients you needed to do it. So that's what made us focus there because with Squeeze, we felt like we can engineer these underlying elements of antigen presentation, which is kind of the key step and be able to drive these responses in a much more powerful way than what people had done in the past. So we chose to focus there because a cancer vaccine that works could have enormous impact, but people had been stuck on it for reasons that we believed we could solve. So as a first indication, that was an exciting area to go into. Now, there's a contrast there where as kind of like a company strategy choice in, in those days, our decision was, do we go for a mechanism that's being successful in the clinic that we can think we can do a bit better like CAR-Ts at the time? 
or do we go for a mechanism that we think is much higher impact, but hasn't been proven out yet, or like no one's really gotten it to work yet. And that was a very tough call because back then, this was back in 2015, car T's were red hot. There was a lot of motivation and attraction to go there because financing was easier. There was a lot of buzz around it. On the other hand, cancer vaccines had been known for their failures, but we, in the end, kind of followed our rationale and instincts that know that these cancer vaccine mechanisms, we really believe we can solve them. And if we solve them, that can have a much bigger impact. So that's how we decided to go there first. And thankfully, you know, our investors were supportive and Roche took a big interest in what we were doing because they also thought we could probably solve that fundamental issue. So they came in as an early partner and that really helps kind of reinforce and validate the direction we were going in. So tell me a little more about uh, the Roche partnership. Were they able to impact the speed at which these therapies were becoming promising or even getting to market? So I, I think having a good partner early on for a small company can be invaluable. I think one of the biggest benefits or probably the two biggest benefits of having a partner like them come in is one, just for external people, the validation it brings with it, because people like Roche have many, many options. Everyone and their mother is calling them about potential oncology collaborations. And so for them to want to work with a particular group definitely sends a signal to other folks, be it in the investor community, partners, or potential recruits and team members that you're trying to bring on. So that was one very helpful part of it. The other part is more on the substance as far as they're very experienced in oncology. They really know what it takes to do later stage development and what the field is like. So there's a lot of very helpful input and feedback as you try to kind of develop the program and implement it. So those are probably some of the biggest benefits of having had them involved. Having the Roche stamp of credibility can be quite powerful, particularly in terms of recruiting talent that perhaps has worked primarily in big pharma and doesn't quite understand the biotech ecosystem. What are some of the bigger challenges you see across the biotech industry over the next one to two decades? I think there's going to be all kinds of interesting challenges. One is to see how much capital the sector continues to attract because there's a lot of new innovations happening, and that's going to take resourcing and capital allocation from the financial markets for it to be able to take off. And it'll be interesting to see if this wave of kind of companies and innovation that's been coming out will be met with or supported by a wave of financing or finance interest that can help drive it. So I think that's going to be one interesting component. I think another systemically interesting piece is the talent portion, which I think you alluded to. Um, It is suddenly become very competitive because of this sudden wave of companies that's emerged. So we need enough people that are excited about the sector that are going into the right training programs at university or career-wise aiming at this zone to be able to help drive this in a productive fashion for everyone. And then I think the other side, which is probably inevitable, is what is the continuing conversation on the policy side as far as healthcare and drug pricing, et cetera? I think there's positive ways that can go. I think there's negative ways that can go. In the end of the day, I think as long as in biotech, you're solving a problem that matters, as opposed to pursuing a me too drug, you'll be fine, because people will always want ways to treat terrible diseases. They may not want the 10th way to treat the exact same thing in the same way. But they'll always want a new way to treat a disease better or treat a disease that can't currently be treated. 
You took the company public last year. What was that experience like for you and your team? And what are some of the changes you've observed during that transition from being privately held to now being publicly traded? So going public is definitely a exciting and very tiring portion of the company life cycle, I would say. Things can be very different going from private to public, because I think on the private side, maybe one way to put it is that people judge you in snapshots because you, you're not, you don't have this stream of disclosures and you don't have a stock price every day. So you kind of show up one day because you're recruiting people or because you're raising money. And then people just kind of don't know what you're up to until you reemerge, whatever it is, six months later, 12 months later, 18 months later. And then they look again and you're judged on, did you make progress between time points A and B? Public companies, it's much more of a movie than a series of snapshots. So kind of like every day, every week, something's happening. And it's not even necessarily you did something, but someone somewhere else did something or some news article about someone else came out and someone will read into that as it relates to you. So I think it is a bit of a different dynamic. I think there's a lot of benefits to being on the public side where it's a much, much, much deeper pool of capital. And it's a much more liquid pool because people can transact and come in and out in a much more simple way than on the private side. So I think that really helps. I think with the right investors, they can take a very long-term view on the public side in ways which the VC structure is just constrained because VCs in the end have a fun lifetime. So early on, it's easy for them to be long-term thinking. The later you get, the harder and harder it is for them to be long-term thinking. And it's not a fault of their own. It's just how they're structured. Later and later on, the more capital you need and VCs aren't set up for very large, with a few exceptions. VCs aren't really set up for giving large amounts of capital, the public markets are. So I think there's definitely advantages there. And for the long run, generally, you kind of have to have access to that broader capital pool. I think transitioning from private to public, there's a lot of dynamics that can change along the way, like who has what kind of say on what the company can and can't do can be complicated on the private side. On the public side, it's still complicated, but in other ways, very simplified because there is no like preferred investor that can push something or the other. Everyone's kind of the same. So there's a, a bit of a cleanliness to it. And, and going through the IPO process itself, though, is a lot of work because there's so many things that need to come together. And we can always talk more about that. But it is a lot of work and falls into the category of like, it's not really for everybody. Some people really like staying on the private side, because there's certain elements of life that they like there. And then some people like being on the public side, because that like, I've luckily, you know, liked both sides of it, and probably like the public side a bit more. So, so far, that's worked out well for us. From your perspective, in both the private and public markets, have you observed any meaningful changes in sentiment towards the life sciences industry as a result of the pandemic? I think we went through an interesting phase where early on in the pandemic, there was a massively positive sentiment towards the industry. And I think that was reflected in kind of your typical indices that track small biotechs or the healthcare sector overall. I think that has since receded again, I, I think just purely on like an overall market basis, especially for the small to mid cap category that has receded significantly, especially as the rest of the broader market has continued to go up. And I don't know enough about what that really does or doesn't mean. I think in the long run, everyone will care about healthcare and biotech. And to the extent 
biotechs can start to show truly meaningful advancement in how we treat diseases, I think it can draw more and more attention towards it. So there's the potential for a virtuous cycle. If you can start to make breakthroughs that really matter to folks, it will draw in a lot more attention and capital allocation. But if you can't do that, people will be distracted by other areas to deploy their investments. A lot of our listeners are aspiring founders and entrepreneurs, and for good reason, they'll find your story to be quite inspiring. What's one piece of advice you would provide your younger self? Um, I don't know if this is an advice or a statement to my younger self, but like, it'll be a lot harder than you think. Uh, And I think that's one piece that for everyone, it's in abstract, really exciting to be able to go pursue something you believe in, but the reality of what it takes to get it off the ground is a lot more painful than many people may realize. So I think that's something that realistically people should kind of ask themselves, do they really want to do it? And as I kind of think about it, it's like, do you care about this kind of technology or impact more than you care about anything else? And if the answer is yes, then go for it. If the answer is no, do not do it. And I think aside from that, I, you know, if you've crossed that bridge, I think the next thing is probably be conscious of doing what you think is right or what should be done, as opposed to what you think would please the crowd, so to speak. Because sometimes it is very tempting to do crowd pleasing thing, but oftentimes the crowd will completely change its mind three months later, and you're just going to be chasing your own tail. Uh, if you try to do that for too long. So I think that's a temptation that most founders probably fall into or most leaders in these formative stages. And it's important to resist it as much as possible. So that's probably the other thing I would say to kind of the younger version of me. Great. So Armand, thank you so much for sharing your story today and the exciting work that you and your colleagues are, are pursuing at Squeeze. Thanks a lot for having me. This was great. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi. It's edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.